Hey everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. Have you seen that thing that is yellow? Uh, what? A yield? Perhaps a sign <laughs> of some sort. Of uh, some sort. We are talking The River of Night's Dreaming by uh, Carl. Carl Edward Wagner. Thank you. Is it Wagner or Wagner? I, whenever I see that, I say Wagner, but that's mainly because um, of Flight of the Valkyrie. Yeah. I just automatically think Nazi or proto-Nazi composer. Yeah. Uh, I guess for, for this instance, we'll go with Wagner. Just Probably. to not evoke the image of proto-Nazis. Well, that's kind of unavoidable in this story <laughs> fair enough all right so for those of you keeping score um the river of night streaming is a king in yellow uh story it is one of the few stories that joe pulver the master of all things king in yellow uh considers to be one of canonical to the original chambers story yeah it's um it's also apparently the only king in yellow story that uh wagner wrote yeah interestingly enough so um it originally appeared in whispers three in the early 80s yeah like 83 i believe it was um which have fun finding that <laughs> and we got a copy in the Haster cycle uh, by Chaosium where it was reprinted. You, f- you forgot to say our good friends Chaosium. Oh, sorry. From our good friends Chaosium at Chaosium. That <laughs> company that makes um, something that we enjoy. Some fucking Call of Cthulhu or something like that. Yeah, some a Rune Quest or something like that. That's right. They make Rune Quest. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So this is the. I have a copy of the second edition, which is the edition that has the uh, fifth grade diorama cover. Not that anyone will ever see this, but it. Yeah, it looks like something like some kid put in a shoebox for a social studies class. Probably got a B plus because there's actually no. Haster in here. Yeah. What is on there? Like a pyramid? Um, it, that it, doesn't even it, look like Carcosa. No, okay, so there's a... Now, it looks like a model. I mean, it looks like a model, and it was looks like almost like a videotape still, mm-hmm. um, but it's got like a couple of rocks standing in a pit of gravel with some maybe gravestones or tiny little monoliths. Um, there's a set of stairs going up to a, uh, I don't know, it looks like a mask probably, but that's only because I'm familiar with the source material. <laughs> it looks like a mask that is also a building, so like maybe a temple. Um, and there is some bat thing flapping around. And there's a moon. Um, yeah, and there might, there might be a lake in the background. So maybe it's not a moon, maybe it's a twin sun. It's hard to tell. Anyway, I look at it and it does not evoke the king in yellow to me. But well, no, 
But then again, you know, Haster and the King in Yellow uh, are technically two separate entities. Yeah. Uh, Haster, according to some of the research I was doing when I was looking for context in the story, might not even be originally an entity at all, but a place. All right. Um, so there. Well, I wasn't Haster a shepherd god in one well, of the... Uh, was it There's the story? shepherd god in, in a Ambrose Beer story called Haya the Shepherd or something. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, it comes up again in, I want to say it's mentioned in one of the stories in The King in Yellow. I want to say a, maybe. As a place. Well, yeah, kind of, kind of ambiguously mentioned. Mm -hmm. Like you don't know, but context, a lot of people think it's a place. Um, and of course, Lovecraft picked up on that and then mentioned it in one of his lists of things um, in the same sentence as King in Yellow and possibly Carcosa, um, which I th think because the great HP put them in the same like line on a piece of paper, Durlith, um, who... I, I I don't know what his problem was, but Durlith like make oh that's canon now, right? And and now we have Haster and King and Yellow are are aspects of the same thing, or Haster, yeah. King and Yellow is an avatar of Haster, or vice versa, or some horrible like thing. It's it's funny because while we're recording this, the good friends of Jackson Elias um have released their their um king yellow and gaming kind of thing that they're doing and they have a big discussion about um the context of it and and i agree with them that the great thing about um about the original king and yellow stories uh repair of reputations the those mm -hmm. chamber stories is the ambiguity of everything and how right. um the, the, there's no almost no context and you have to make it yourself. Mm -hmm. So my question is why is Lovecraft and extended to Durlith? Why is their opinion on something that they've read just as you read it any more valid than what you have going on in your mind? Right. And personally, I'm of the school. I agree with Joe Pulver that uh, my King in yellow has no tentacles. <laughs> yeah um I, when 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 you read uh and chambers, that, yeah you the read chambers there's no tentacles and it doesn't like the closest you come to something that's like horrible like physically horrible is the uh corpse like uh what is it a grave digger mm. um that is almost grub like 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 a like a, a baby insect or something uh, which is gross in and of itself, but it's not like seafood gross. It's more like land arthropod gross. Right. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned the good friends of Jackson Elias. There was that uh, debate on uh, Scott's page about the yeah. origins of the connection. And uh, we brought uh, Pete Rollick in. So thanks to Pete Rollick for uh, supplying some information to that debate. Right. I think, I think um, Scott's, Facebook debate was an extension of their their show and what they mm -hmm. were trying to do on their show. I only listened to half of it. I didn't listen to the other half. We apologize. Sorry. 
but yeah, if you if you get a chance, if you're not already listening to that show, it's a good show. You should should give it a whirl. That's right. They're good friends. Of a dead guy. Yeah. Well, they are they are the cast members of uh Massive Nyarlathotep. That's true. <laughs> and Harry Potter. And Harry Potter. Now, what speaking of uh Joe Pulver. Uh, one of the things that uh, really strikes me is that River of Night Streaming is like the perfect transition story between uh, Robert Chambers' style and, and those first five stories in the King and Yellow collection and Joe Pulver's King and Yellow work uh, collected in King and Yellow Tales, Volume 1, The Orphan Palace, things like that. Uh, you know, just Just tonally you can see the evolution almost like a, a current. Oh my God. The story. It kind of like just slaps you in the face at one point. Cause you're reading this story and, and you've got like all this heavy, like uh Victorian symbolism happening. Mm. And, and everybody in this story is uh, connected just by name to mm. repair reputations, um, which is my favorite of, of the, I think that's, you know, oh, b- big shock! It's it's the most popular one, but but um, it's also the one most people are familiar with. Well, yeah, it's the it's the first story in the collection, so naturally yeah. that's and it makes such an impact because it's so different from everything else you read. That uh, that it, of course it makes that impact, and of course it's like the go to because that is the thing that kind of sets up the entirety of the Carcosa like mythos. Uh, it introduces the play. It introduces the yellow sign. It introduces just the, the madness effect and the influence that this possible entity, the King in yellow has uh, over people. And really because, because it's an alternate history setting uh, the King in yellow or repair of reputations, but the King in yellow and the Carcosa uh, influence really extends into very much the modern world where uh, Lovecraft stories and, and oftentimes a lot of, you know, Cthulhu mythos stuff sticks to kind of rural settings, lonely places, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, repair of reputations takes place dead smack dead in New York City, right? In in an alternative New York City where mm-hmm. we have an an uh, an imperial America uh, modeled more on a European style monarchy, right? Than um, what we actually ended up having in the twenties because it was it was written in the late eighteen hundreds, like eighteen in the eighteen nineties, mm-hmm. but it's set thirty years into the future, right? So it's kind of I mean, y'all know this. Everyone's read this story, so it's kind of um, a science fiction story in a way, just setting wise. Um, and that setting actually echoes to today and how um, we live in America these days, because there's a lot of similarities, which kind of sucks. Um, yeah, but that story uh, revolves around the what are they called the the Castilians, the Castanes, the Castanes. Um, and, and everyone in this, in this story, the river of night's dreaming, um, has a namesake in 
yeah, uh, repair either, of reputations. Right. Either directly from repair of reputations or a character from the play The King in Yellow. <coughs> right. And that's <clears throat> and that's one of the other really interesting things. We uh talked a little bit last episode about uh the forbidding books that you can find at rummage sales and whatnot. Um in the case of The King in Yellow, and whether it's the original Chamber Stories or River of Night Streaming, uh, the forbidden book, the, the evil text is not spell a spell book. It's not a uh, you know diary of some madman. It is a theatrical play. Right. Uh, very much, you know, kind of like Shakespeare, the snippets of the play we read uh, kind of echo Poe's Mask of the Red Death. Yeah, it's it's definitely got that feel to it. Um, but yet and, this play is this and, like in in, in this it, it seems like um, it's a little bit more salacious mm-hmm. than it was in the original uh, repair of reputations. Well, I think I think this entire story <laughs> that, was a bit what, salacious. Right. Well, that's where it, it kind of slaps you in the face because I, I guess it's an old story. It's not really a spoiler alert. But um, you you start off with this uh, woman who's a criminal, mm-hmm. and she's on a on an activities bus, right? A, so a nameless chain, character, chain gang or whatever, right. uh, during a storm on a coastal city, and the bus crashes into the bay, mm-hmm. and she is thrown from the bus and is decides that this is the perfect opportunity to make good my escape, so she starts swimming making her way towards back towards the city. Right. Cause you know, they'll never think of that. Right. <laughs> um, but, but she makes it. And um, as soon as she hits land, things start going wonky for her because uh, she gets up, um, gets out into the warehouse district, but everything's abandoned. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one's around. It's night. That's fine, but uh, what she, what you are under the impression that in a thriving city, she enters with there's nothing. Right. There's a a road, mm-hmm. and like empty warehouses that are all connected to each other. There's no alleys between them. So it's just one long building. Right. Um, and then. To protect people from the from the bay, the river is um, a fence with a balustrade, and that's it. So she starts chugging along, and she's half naked because uh, she took off her clothes to swim better. Correct. So she's she's walking around in her brown panties, um, following this road that nothing is happening on, and she, she starts getting the feeling that she's being stalked. Mm-hmm. And she gets to a, a dead end on the, the road dead ends at a cliff with a, a set of stairs going up the side of the cliff. So she, she hightails it up the cliff into a neighborhood where everything is, once again is abandoned except for one house has lights on. Right. So she goes. I mean, what, what she, else would you do? She, right. She's being chased. So she goes into this house where there's a woman uh, dressed... Uh, in a period uh, long ago, mm-hmm. last um, century we were, modern, 
Right. Uh, being read to by a, a woman in a maid's outfit. Mm-hmm. Like old school maid. Right. Very, uh, very uh, Downton Abbey. Right. Sort of so, thing. So all of a sudden you're, 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 you as a reader are brought into this world in confusion because mm-hmm. your expectations are her expectations and they are not met. Right. So, so it's, it's almost like she comes into this blank canvas of a city and the only thing going on is this Victorian house in the, in a, like a nice fancy house in a rundown neighborhood. Right. Yep. Uh, you know, seeing no other recourse, she doesn't want to be outside in the rain in her, in her skivvies, uh, being chased by a rat monster or whatever it happens to be. You never know. You're kind of left in the dark about that. Good use of a monster there. Uh, it's a more of a presence, really. Yeah. Uh, because she never comes out and says there, there are rats following her, but she never comes out and says like, there's a thing amongst the rats. She just has this feeling that, that there's something chasing her. Right. Right. And, and yeah, that's kind of like the best kind of monster. The one that exerts influence, but is never seen. Right. But uh, you know, so instead of going to the front door, like you do, she knocks on the window. Right. Um, and it's one of those big casement windows. Uh, right. But still, I mean, you're knocking on the window. She knocks on the window a couple of times. They let her in. <laughs> they get they, let her in through the window. Right. They just let her in through the window. They open the window. She falls in. Uh, oh, my. <laughs> and, and oh, well. Well, hello there, dear. Yes, all of a sudden it's, we're in a Jane Austen novel. Yes, let's let's get you dry. Let's get you some clothes. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Uh, they ask her, of course, what her name is. Uh, she doesn't give her real name. She gives her name as Casilda Archer. Right after her uh, doctor at the at the prison. Right, Casilda uh, being just this random first name and Archer for her doctor. Right, who was also the doctor. Um, in in the repair of reputations, mm-hmm. and obviously Casilda is um, a character in the play The King in Yellow, mm-hmm. and everyone's name begins with a C. That's right. We're introduced to the the mass mistress of the house, uh, Mrs. Castain. Right. Uh, we're and her maid Camilla who is also a character in the King and Yellow play. Right. And as we already said, Castain is the name of the, of the uh, family in repair of reputations. Mm-hmm. And you come to find out that she had a daughter named Constance. Right. Who was also a character in repair of reputations. That's right. You get some, a lot of, get a lot of alliteration there. Yeah. And every, everybody's name begins with a C, which is, I know it's done on purpose, but it's it's super annoying. Yes. Just a little. Except for Archer. Archer's the only one that really kind of stands out. Right. Uh, who is also a female character. There are no male characters in this. Save Possibly. for one. Possibly. Possibly. We'll get to that well, in a second. Yeah. But uh, even, so she- even then, you know, the statement still holds true. That's true. So she's like, uh, you know, she's exhausted. 
Uh, she's battered and bruised from her swim and the accident. Um, she has this. She has a fever because she's been uh, swimming in raw sewage. Right, the river of night's dreaming from the title. <laughs> no, that's the river of night soils dreaming. <laughs> right. Um. So they nurse her back to health. You come to find out that now from from this point on, though. Uh, she is referred to in the narration as uh, Camilla. Casilda. Right? Casilda, sorry. See, the C's fuck me up. Casilda. So Casilda is the main character. Camilla is the maid. She takes on that identity as far as the story is concerned, mm-hmm. which, I, which I think is, is important because you come to find out that um, the prison she's in might not actually be a prison per se, but more of a place for the criminally insane. Right. An Arkham Asylum. Yeah. Where she is being treated um, by Dr. Archer for psychosis. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, Has her on shock therapy, uh, pumps her full of sedatives and antipsychotics. Yes, Um, which she's not getting anymore. And the only thing she is getting are the the tonics that right. Miss, Mrs. Castain is giving her. Right, which uh, kind of reminds me of some type of uh, laudanum-laced yeah, beverage. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's like some opioid. But definitely. Uh, Drink your tonic, dear. Drink your now, tonic. Now, you know, before- but, the, but this, whole, this whole thing here, it, that's where it starts getting creepy is with the tonic. At first you think, okay, it's just some kind of medicine, you know, help her get to sleep or whatever. But uh, Camilla and Mrs. Castain uh, insist on continuing to administer this tonic even after her fever breaks and she's feeling better. Yeah, and it leaves an an acidic taste in her mouth. All the signs of it being, she's being drugged are are there. Um, Now, before... Um, Wagner gave up his life and became an author. He was actually a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So he knows his stuff when it comes to um, mental health. Right. For we'll that time period. To, right. For, well, yeah. We'll come back to that as well. And because it's a counter to an argument somebody made on some website. Ah. Right. So, you know, first, first things first, she has to get cleaned up and she has a bit of a, uh, the prelude to a salacious encounter with. Yeah. She has like these lesbian dreams. Mm -hmm. Well, no, there's, there's some, uh, some actual contact in the bath scene. Right. But there's some lesbian dreams. Uh, we suppose they're dreams. Once, once she falls asleep the first time, is when the story really kind of takes on its more dreamlike quality, and there is this kind of blurred line between what is her dream, what is actually transpiring, right. and her memory. So this is when it starts getting a little crazy. This is where the story not only goes takes a left turn, but starts to go south as well. I guess it was it was heading west before it goes left to go south. Um, because the, the the touching and everything is described very sensually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not salacious per se. 
at this point. No, it's a prelude to salaciousness. (laughs) It gets pretty salacious. Um, When she does fully recover and she has her quote unquote wits about her, even though now she has kind of assumed uh, this identity that Mm -hmm. she's made up. She's, she's like, I don't think she's, um, she's, She's uh, commit not committed to the role, but she inhabits the role. She becomes, mm-hmm. uh, God damn it, Camilla Castilla. God, fucking Casilda Archer. Casildas, thank you. Should have written this down. She becomes Casilda. She's not unnamed psychotic patient playing Casilda. She is Casilda, right? Also important, I think. Mm-hmm. But that that uh, the entirety of the previous identity just kind of dissolves once yes. she puts on clothes for the first time. Yes, and what clothes they are. Right. Well, I mean that's that that is an interesting parallel that uh, while she's swimming the bay to escape the prison bus, she strips off her old clothing. Well, she uh, sheds her skin. She sheds her skin. She gets rid of her former identity. Wanders the streets of the decaying warehouse district. Uh, as as, simp- as pretty much a non-person, and yeah, then and, once and she totally, re-enters society, in, totally in, in a dreamlike state, mm-hmm. and yeah, then she comes out completely by fear, right? So, sorry, and then she comes through the portal, and she becomes this other person. The yes. portal being, of course, the the window. Now these these women live um, like they are in the eighteen nineties. They, uh, she's, uh, Mrs. Castain is a, a recluse. Uh, you know, she doesn't go out to buy groceries. Neither does her maid Camilla. Uh, they have everything delivered and they pretty much, you know, Camilla does all the household chores and seeks to entertain the mistress in whatever fashion she requires, which is almost, which manifests as this almost incessant reading of the King in Yellow. Yes. Now, the clothes that they make her wear mm-hmm. are period 1890 appropriate dress um, for a upper class uh, society girl, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Uh, petticoats, frocks, corsets, corset, which is I think is is very important considering what happens later on. Those corsets are very binding. Mm-hmm. Um, especially this one where, you know, she, they, he takes great pains to describe, um, the, the donning of the corset where it's laced up and she has to like, Camilla has to stick her foot in her back and pull the laces <laughs> tight, pull the yeah. laces tight uh, all the while, um, uh, Mrs. Castane is saying, yes, a woman's figure is very important and her posture and, you know, very, everything must be prim and proper. Yep, I can teach you how to be a proper young lady. Yes. So she sheds her skin on the way there, and now she has molted and grown her a new carapace, which is this um like odd Victorian raiment, which is appropriate for the house, but not appropriate for the time period. You kind of get the feeling that it is um mid twentieth century. Yeah, yeah, but there's also kind of a timelessness to it as well. It, you know, the introduction um, of the story really could take place at any time. Well, except for there's a motorized bus. Right, well, 
you know, I, I presume motorized buses will probably be around for quite some more time. Um, no, no, I'm saying that there weren't motorized buses. Right. Right. So anytime in, period, anytime in the modern era. Right. So, so this house exists outside of time mm-hmm. for the people in it. Right. And perhaps the whole city does. And and that's true. You never really know um, whether that this is uh, just a function of the house itself and the, and the queer inhabitants of the house and their quirks. Or if um, somehow she ha- is been physically transported to like this kind of limbo, because it mm-hmm. almost it almost feels that way. Um, but it's hard to tell because you know you're you're influenced by things. Nothing has a name. This the city doesn't have a name. The mm-hmm. narrator doesn't have a name. Uh, the bay doesn't have a name. You just know it's on the coast, right? And, and, and it's grayness and rain, grayness right. and rain, and and the clues that you get are really nitpicky things, like it's a motorized bus, <laughs> right? And then and the names of of drugs that are being used, right? You know, it's stuff that you can you can easily look up and see what periods these were used in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 very small amounts of, of contextual clues. Right. And then there's uh, the one mentioned toward the end of the story of the war. Right. Yes. I think she mentions the great war. Or maybe she mentions world war one in it. And then you got to think that it has to be after world war two, because they called it the great war up until world war two, mm-hmm. which kind of why I'm thinking mid mid-century right anyway there's definitely like a a, uh there's definitely a a contrast between what the actual absolute time of this story and what is going on in this house right and that further enhances the dreamlike quality of the whole story right and whether that is a physical going back in time which i probably doubt or just like the uh weird mental state of the occupants of this house. Mm-hmm. Well, we've, we'll get to that in a second. It's like kind of like an Adams family kind of thing. Right. Right. Kind of a, you know, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I can, I can see what you're saying there. Uh, things could start going crazy. Uh, Casilda pretty much, you know, becomes Casilda the first time she looks in that full length mirror in the new uh, clothes that are, you know, period appropriate to late 18th century. Right. And and she almost a, a, adapts the role of being uh, the daughter. Mm-hmm. Right. Mrs. Castain uh, lost her daughter, Constance, in a tragedy that's not fully explained. No. As a matter of fact, um, there's a scene where, well, this is where it really lights everything on fire. Uh, she's the maid. I'm not even going to bother the maid is telling her what happened mm-hmm. to uh, Constance. And, you know, she says, "There's oh, it was a boy. They ran away. And uh, Mrs. Castain was not very happy. Right. <laughs> and Mrs. Castain overhears that and uh, decides to punish the maid. Right. Maybe. That's when the shit... Well, yeah. Is it punishment? Well, no, it. even... <laughs> but... 
but see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Once that story is told, right? Very bad. Uh, Casilda herself has read The King in Yellow a number of times, right. and particularly the dreaded second act right. um, that drives everyone who reads it absolutely insane. Which and, also has no canon um, appearance. Right. Like people have, like, as a matter of fact, the next story um, in the Haster cycle is James Blish's More Light, which attempts to uh, give a second act. Right. To, to the play. But, you know, in, in, in my mind, there is a, you know, kind of, it, it increases the mystery of the story if no one says what the second act is composed of. It, no words, no excerpts from the second act at all. You just know that the second act is this dreaded thing. And God forbid anyone ever gets to the third act. Yeah. And the, well, <laughs> the third I, act is never mentioned. I agree with you. I, um, I think that these forbidden t- tomes or tombs, tomes, forbidden t- Jesus, I'm on point today. Uh, these forbidden tomes have just more, just they're more forbidding the less you know about them. Mm-hmm. Like Snippets is great. That's one of the great things about um, The King in Yellow, the original uh, book, is that everything is very up in the air. It's you, all you get from this player, little like one or two lines of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Maybe, uh, maybe like a, a setting, right? You know, like a stage direction. Um, it's the same thing with like the best parts of Lovecraft are when he like hints at what's contained in the Necronomicon, but you don't really want to fucking know, right? You not because it's going to drive you, yeah, not because it's going to drive you insane. It's because whatever your mind is going to like dream up is is going to be better. Than what anybody can physically put down. Well, you know, and it's also it's also the fact that it will not have that effect. And you're reading the words of the dreaded Necronomicon or the the second act of the King in Yellow, and you're perfectly in a, in a in a relativistic sort of way sane once right. you're done. Right. You know, it hasn't affected you, so it kind of ruins the illusion of the story. Or has it? I'm stroking my chin. I see that you're stroking your chin. Are you trying to like, are you trying to like diagnose me or something? I am wearing a yellow shirt. It's true. That was not planned at all. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, your mind is your own best friend, worst enemy, whatever, when it comes to these things. Right. But, but once we get to the part where, where, um, Shoot, now now you've screwed me up. I've got my name mixed up. <laughs> Constance's know. disappearance right. uh, is, is explained, uh, kind of. Is explained. That's when shit starts getting weird, and you don't really know if the maid's quote-unquote punishment is actually real or if Casilda is dreaming about the possibilities well, of the I- punishment. I think it is real because the candle has actually burned down. Mm. So what, what, what happens is uh, Casilda goes out. Um, she hears a noise at night. She wakes up 
and her uh, her her meds from Archer, from the doctor, are really starting to wear off. Right. Um, so she she's and, and so she might be having a psychotic episode as well, or half of it is you know psychotic. It's hard to tell, but she gets up and tries to find out what's happening. Goes to uh, lights a candle and goes down the hall. And Mrs. Castane's not in, in her room. So she hears a noise from the maid's quarters upstairs, and uh, she goes to investigate. And uh, it turns into 50 hues of yellow. Yeah, it's it's the big bondage scene. <laughs> so Which... all, all, all the corsets and everything are still in effect. <laughs> Right, but now they're made of leather with spikes. Right, and and riding crops and and all the accoutrement <laughs> right. that, that you would put. They are spine. They're not spine corrective anymore. Corsets. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're, yes. they're designed to give you the full um, uh, what's his name effect. Um, God damn it! I really can't. I'm having like total brain. Mark Marquis de Sade. Yeah, that, but um, God damn, the guy invented Deadpool. Oh, uh, do, 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 Rob Liefeld. Liefeld, yes. <laughs> They're just the, the corsets are designed to give you Liefeld spine. <laughs> <laughs> Bring your butt out and your everything else forward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, so, um, Mrs. Gustain is, is, uh, got the maid. Tied up, hanging from the ceiling, and is whipping her with a riding crop. Yep, like you do. <laughs> Which never happened to the King Yellow. <laughs> no, and it probably would not have because it, no. that was a very proper society, even though, but even though it's considered to be decadent literature. Yeah. Um, but but now here's where you get kind of a segue into what Pulver gets into. Mm-hmm. Not that Pulver gets into anything perverted per se, but what Pulver gets into a lot of um, violence mm-hmm. and um, very sexualized violence, right. uh, serial killers and and people with 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 mental disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, committing acts of violence in the name of the king in yellow or, you know, um, with nods to the king in yellow. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and Casilda wakes up the next morning. Yes, the candle stub has burned out. She has some bruises and whatnot, all because, you know, Mrs. Castaigne, you know, catches her and says, you know, oh, well, we have such delights to show you. Yeah. And, you know, we don't see anything else on camera. We get rather vivid uh, dream sequences of uh, sexual assaults. Uh, and these dreams continue throughout the story. And, and they're now these dreams are coupled with sexual assaults and S&M and the prison. Mm-hmm. And the characters... Um, all start to interchange. Dr. Archer and Mrs. Castain, and and we, we we just get this jumbling in her mind. Right. The um, antipsychotic well, drugs, the tonic that Castain gives her, the 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 bondage scenes with the riding crop, the electroshock treatment. 
you know, it all starts like merging together and, and exposure to the king and yellow to the play and, and exposure to the play itself, um, which is really interesting. And it also brings to mind for me, uh, kind of the theme of the film Sucker Punch, uh, where you have uh, something that's horrible that's happening and it gets layered and blended together with these like multiple layers of uh, fantasy and delusion. I'm just going to say that I proudly never seen that film. Right. Well, I have, and you know, I probably won't see it again, but you know, I, I do respect that that particular uh, story that they told was pretty unique. And giant robot samurai. <laughs> giant robot samurai are pretty cool. Sadly, there's none in the story. Right. Um, now, it's at this point when she's fully free of her antipsychotics and fed up with being uh, beaten within an inch of her life every night that she decides to um, take a face from the ancient gallery and walk on down the hall. Right. <laughs> So, for those of you who are under 50, um, that means she finds a knife. <laughs> right. A key. She finds right. a key. Yes. Um, she, is, she is able to slip her bonds. Because now, nightly, she's being tied up. Mm-hmm. Uh, restrained. Kind of like she would be in, in um, her ward. But because of her experience in the prison, she knows how to slip bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, so she manages to free herself. She goes to the kitchen and gets a key, a knife, um, and frees herself. Right. By using the key. Opens the locks. Yes, which are the necks of, of the maid and the matron. Right. But once she's done that, she encounters uh, something in a window, and you don't really know. It's it's one of those. It's on the other side of the window. Yeah, um, it's actually pretty well described. It's like an over muscle muscle uh, guy with a with a huge ding dong, a huge sentient ding dong. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm coming to get you. Who says the king in yellow doesn't have tentacles? My my name's Richard. <laughs> no, as I said, tentacles, not testicles. Right. <laughs> um. Now, the the theory, the fan theory that um, I was talking about earlier, basically says that um, what's it? Uh, she's really a man. I believe that was uh, something attributed to Wagner himself. Yeah, but it was attributed to to Wagner via some guy who had no reference. Right. So, we gotta watch that shit. And Wagner can't say anything because he's dead. Right. Um, I think the only this encounter with this yellowish, gross, misshapen thing, which apparently is what was stalking her, may be the clue that shows that she was indeed a man. Mm-hmm. It's all I can think of. 
because really it is the only thing in this um, whole book, really, that is male. Right. Um, it Maybe it is her subconscious uh, fear of what she is coming to get her. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard. And that's kind of what I felt it was. It didn't make me think, oh, she's a man. Um, I didn't have this Dumbledore moment, you know, where 20 years later, uh, Wagner says, oh, yeah, uh, she was a man. You know, yeah, Dumbledore was gay. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, if if she. If it wasn't said by this guy who claims that Wagner had said it, I would have been an issue in my mind. You know what I'm saying? Um, But this is the only thing I can think of that would even vaguely hint at that. And and And, maybe you you have to to jump through some hoops to get there. Yeah. Maybe you have to be a trained psychiatrist to, (laughs) to really understand that. Very Freudian. Yeah, possibly. Um, There are no cigars in this story. Only giant sentient penis. There might be a Steely Dan or two. Possibly. Um, once once that encounter uh, plays itself out, uh, we flip to kind of a postscript moment uh, with Dr. Archer and an aide speaking well, of... Well, well, she crashes through the window. Uh, she right. like, leaves in terror for this thing and goes, goes... She wants to go out of the house the way she came in through mm-hmm. the window. Right. Um, but that window is being blocked by this monster. Right. So she goes to another window on the opposite side of the room and the thing comes after her. And that's kind of where it cuts off. Right. So you don't know if she's consumed by this thing, if she gets away, what's going on. It just kind right. of like ends nebulously. Right. And then we cut to the postscript where Dr. Archer and, a, and a, an assistant, an orderly or something, are speaking about the character as though she died uh, in the bus crash. Right. And well, they're assuming she died because they're hoping for the best. Because mm-hmm. apparently right. she's a serial killer. She's psychotic. Right. And mm-hmm. she's been off her meds. Right. Right. So so they're like, that's the best thing that could possibly happen is that she died. You know, I don't mean to sound callous or anything, says Dr. Archer, who by, you know, the only account we get of Dr. Archer is through Casilda's own memory of Archer. Right. And you know, Callus seems to be this lady's middle name. You know that that you know she's particularly cruel. Uh, you know, electroshock therapy really, you know, is not the most pleasant thing in the world. Yeah, I, I think you are going to uh, not like the focal point of your treatment if your treatment is violent. True. Um, but I think I think this uh, later. You know, you see uh, Archer appearing in Joe Pulver's stories as a sadist. Uh, yeah, but you can't. You can't. And I, I, well, you know, it all blends together as kind of a mythos in my head. So, you know, yeah, sure. You know, you can't peg that just reading the story by itself. But I think it just kind of flows right. with the progression of the story. But the, I mean, this is written like before when Pulver was a pup. Right, and right, and n- n- nothing against Joe Pulver because he's a fine author and everything. But Joe Pulver is Joe Pulver, and Joe Pulver's take on this is Joe Pulver's take on this, and it, 
you know, if he feels that Archer was a cruel person and that's the character he puts in his stories, that's fine, but that has nothing to do with the story. Well, it doesn't have anything to do with the story, but it's easy to put Archer into that that uh, that kind of callous and sadistic character right. simply because that's how we see her over the course of the story. We right. see her being su- superimposed over Castain. And, you know, we know the memories of her treatment at or how she interprets the treatment at the facility. So that is the kind of thing we get that Archer is kind of shady, Uh, especially especially when you get to the point where, you know, you know, let's just, you know, hopefully she died and let's not talk about this anymore. Right. Now, you very well could be could be right. She could be like cruel and shady, but you also have to remember that it is through the eyes of a psychotic who is uh, coming down off of her meds, who is actively hallucinating mm-hmm. and, and is being uh, tortured more or less uh, by somebody. Right. Right. So, uh, so in this postscript, uh, they're talking about the death of the main character, the one, the person we know as Casilda throughout the story. Right. Um, and they recover a box of her personal belongings from her cell and inside are a bunch of gothic romance novels. Uh, you know, very Scooby-Doo kind of ending. We got a box of gothic romance novels, uh, you know, point, you know that sort of thing. Um, and we also, you know, inside is a copy of The King in Yellow inscribed to Constance Castain. Right. So we are led to believe at the end of the story that it's quite possible that this character died once the bus crashed. And what we are seeing is kind of a, an end of life hallucination, a near death experience of sorts. Right now, the weird thing about this um, ending is that uh, the gender of the, of the main character is not revealed um, by Dr. Archer Mm -hmm. um, at all. Uh, she she makes it a point not to say, um, you know, she was very dangerous. It's this person was very dangerous. This patient was a paranoid schizophrenic and dangerous. Right. Uh, always referred to as the patient, not as a as a pronoun. Uh, right. So maybe maybe um, the delusion of womanhood was part of of the patient's um, psychosis. Perhaps it's it's hard to tell. Um, You know, I guess there's arguments both ways. I mean, I guess maybe this is a little bit more evidence, but I mean, this is like some, some gene wolf level of an embedding code into into your narrative. Right. If, if, if that is true. Uh, but, you know, I really felt that the end of the story just kind of left everything up in the air as to what just transpired. Um, you know, there's no there's no way of knowing by the time you get to the resolution of the story, there's no way of knowing that anything that you just read was real. No, re- no, you're completely correct. I mean, it, it's implied really that the patient was was completely off off the chain. Right. Um, I, I, I believe that 
she probably did kill um, her host and the maid. I'm mm-hmm. sure that's that happened. Um, whether there was like this big, huge, you know, bondage thing happening, or if that was all in her mind, that's up in the air. Right. Um, well, I, I'm not so certain that she actually killed anyone. Um, you know, I, I, you know, once I get to the the conclusion of the story, you, I, I go back and I reflect, and you know, is you know, did did any of that transpire? You know, did she meet Mrs. Castain, or was Mrs. Castain a uh, figment of her delusion created by reading? Because Mrs. Castain does not have a first name. She's no, just that's that's true. She's so Constance's mother, and that's it. Um, and right. you know, she has a copy in her room of the King in Yellow with Constance Castain's name. That's the other so thing. maybe, and Camilla is a character in the King in Yellow, right? Well, it also doesn't say whether the king in yellow that she has is the play or the book. Uh, I believe it is implied to be the play because because the play belonged to Constance. Well, the book belonged to Constance. Right, but they, they go through great lengths to tell you that it is the play throughout well, the course of the narrative and that this is Constance's book and the description of the book they pull out of the box that's is true is the exact description of the book that she's reading so but she the, must be reading the play the king in yellow well she's reading something she right. very well could have read the king in yellow associated all the names in there cuz all those names are contained in in the the book including snippets of the play uh, right. She very well could have just like taken everything from from that and projected it onto uh, whatever she was experiencing. Uh, that's a possibility. That's a possibility. But then again, you know, you're. I think it's a pretty big jump to go from, you know, it's the play to it's. Robert Chambers' book that just happened to be owned by somebody named Castaigne. No, it just said that. It just said Castaigne in there. No one could remember who she was. Right. Nobody could remember who she was, but you know, it it had the book plate that it was belonged to Constance Castaigne. Uh, it just says on the flyleaf, a name was penned in a graceful script, Constance Castaigne. I mean, that could mean maybe somebody wrote it in there. It's hard to tell, you know. Now, I guess what what you really what really comes down to is it a supernatural occurrence, which would be that she, she's reading the play, or is it she's psychotic, and it's all a delusion with the book, The King in Yellow, as the focal point for her psychosis, or is it a combination and, of the two? And and it could go either way, really. Um, you know the. Is there anything overtly supernatural in this story? No, not at all. Uh, almost everything could be attributed to her mental state, including uh, going into a blank city, which mm-hmm. slowly, uh, you know, it has life breathed into it. Right now, see, I would, I would also go as far as to support my argument with the the blank city itself. Uh, being a stand-in for Carcosa. 
as a derelict ruined city. No, I, I, I totally get that. But it could also be just her, her mind, like coming back to. Oh yeah, exactly. Her, her psychosis. Yeah. And, and it's like those old ghost stories that we've mm -hmm. read. Um, it, it all depends on how you interpret it as a reader. It has, you know, there's, contextual clues in there that can go either way and almost every clue in here as a story um is like schrodinger's cat you know right. it, it just depends on your point of view right how you're going to interpret everything well no it uh, just because um you know i'm saying that the city she goes to is this is uh Carcosa doesn't mean that it's actually Carcosa. No, I think it's supposed to evoke Carcosa. It's on a right. lake, or you know, it's on a body of water. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it's it's impossible to get to, and it is more or less a ghost town, right? You but know, I think I think that kind of um, makes me think that it's actually the play in the box and not Robert Chambers' book. See, now I'm thinking that it's you know it it's not. Carcosa, it's her like coming, snapping back into her reality uh, from being like on on a cocktail of drugs and electroshock. So she's you know fuzzy, swimming in fuzzy, coming into this place, and and it's all just a blank canvas until you know she starts to to uh, get get a clearer head. You know the the meds were off and the psychosis kicks in, so she goes from being fuzzy to being um, you know perceiving right but what she's perceiving is broken because she's a broken person she's psychotic right, right. now so, do you think she actually swam across the bay or do you think that this delusion actually took place in the moments before her death i think that there was definitely a i think i think yeah i think she did do the swimming because uh, i think there was a bus crash i think them looking for her and and it's presuming her to be dead implies that like something happened or she, maybe she started to swim and died along the way. And the, the rest of the story is her dying hallucination. Yeah, she didn't actually, be. she didn't actually die crossing the bay, which was a phenomenal athletic feat that she really, you know, wasn't equipped for. Um, and this, the storm is going on at the same time. Yeah. So it's quite possible that, sure, the first couple of paragraphs that we see are true. The bus crashed. You know, that's described very vividly. Um, you know, she's thrown out of the bus and she's, you know, swimming and she decides to swim for it uh, toward a light in the distance. And that's all she's got is a light in the distance. Right. And so she swims and she's overwhelmed by a current she makes certain uh to tell us that at one point she is fighting against a current that's threatening to sweep her out right um so that's quite possible that that's where that's the point where she died and she had one final hallucination prior to her death that could be it too i mean most definitely it's it's you know it's the mark of a really good story of this type when you have multiple ways of looking at it, mm -hmm. you know, that, and none, none is more valid than the other. Right. 
Um, it's just, you know, that, I mean, that's really, that's what excites me the most about um, weird tales or, you know, s- stories like that. Um, isn't the, well, I, I do want like a sense of menace and everything, but it's that am- ambiguity of the story itself mm-hmm. where, you know, uh, whatever the intention of the author is. And I, and I kind of get the feeling that in this case, um, and a lot of good ones, it's intentionally ambiguous uh, so right. that, you know, so that people reread it, talk about it, think about it, you know, it evokes those reactions from people. Right. Um, as opposed to something that is concrete where, you know, you get a monster. That- right. Right. Cause there's a lot of weird tales and, and horror stories and whatnot that are, that play it straight. And, you know, yes, it's a real monster. Yes, it's from Beyond the Stars. Yes, you know, we read in a forbidden magical book and right. it came to us. Well, you know, even like, and, even and like it's a refreshing like Right. Uh, which has like the opium addicted, unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. where, you know, yeah, I guess you can kind of foster it off as a fever dream from this guy or, or an opium dream. But, I don't think that at that point in his career, Lovecraft was a deft enough writer to pull that off. I think later Lovecraft uh, can pull stuff like that off, but like early Lovecraft, nah. Just, oh yeah, like we didn't uh, have the chops at that point. Like the theory I proposed in At the Mountains of Madness that none of that took place past a certain point. Right, like that's believable, you know. Mm-hmm. But Dagon, come on, Dagon, he was chased by a fucking sea monster. Right. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's what happened. Later on, Lovecraft gets a a bit more deft at at writing these things. But um, no, uh, Wagner hits it out of the park in terms of of ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And, And those are always like the ones, you know, like I sat and, you know, I finished it last night. And I didn't reread the whole thing, but I went back to parts just to kind of clear things up in my mind. Except for the names. Except, well, <laughs> they, all, they all begin with C. That's not happening. <laughs> I mean, who does that? Chambers. <laughs> but aside uh, from Chambers, who does that? Well, Wagner. Yeah. <laughs> it's like um, it's like when you're reading, uh, you know, like a Japanese story or an African story and they're not familiar names. Mm-hmm. And if they have like even like a syllable that's similar, it's like, oh, what the fuck? Who's this? <laughs> I can't remember who this is. Yeah. It's kind of like that. <laughs> and there you go. A um, couple of final notes. Uh, fandom lost another another icon. Uh, Peter Mayhew, Chewbacca, died Chewbacca. the week we recorded this. Yeah. So sad, sad. But uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, yes. Tune in next time. And until then, keep 30 luck keep points. Keep 30.